Hello and welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. And this is the podcast to listen to if you're interested in the causes and consequences of war. Today on the show, we have Viet Thanh Nguyen, who is a fiction writer and literary scholar who has focused on the Vietnam War as well as detailing the stories of refugees and displaced. He is uh, unusual compared to our wonky guests, but has and offers profound insight onto how to think about the global displacement crisis and refugees more broadly. Viet Thanh Nguyen's 2015 novel, The Sympathizer, won the Pulitzer Prize. Last year, he was named a MacArthur Fellow, and this year he edited a collection of essays called The Displaced. This was a really fascinating conversation. We dove into deep discussions of identity, of the way that trauma uh, manifests itself in storytelling, of arts, and it really got into a different way to think about the displacement crisis as well as this broader political moment. Um, we had a great time and think you'll really enjoy this episode. Without further ado, here's Viet Thanh Nguyen. So you and your family came to the US as Vietnamese refugees in 1975. Can you just tell us a little bit about that journey and how did you realize that you were a refugee? In 1975, the Vietnam War ended badly for, from our side. And my parents were, uh, and we, my, my brother and I, were four out of 130,000 Vietnamese refugees who came to the United States. And we ended up in one of the four refugee camps set up to hold us. Ours was Fort Indian Town Gap in, in Pennsylvania. And that's where my memories begin as a four-year-old. And I don't think I understand. Heard, I don't think I understood myself. I don't think I understood myself as a refugee. That that word and that concept was beyond my understanding. But I definitely knew that something um, bad had happened to us uh, because in order to leave that refugee camp, you had to have a sponsor. But there was no sponsor willing to take all four of us. So my my parents went with one sponsor. My brother went with one sponsor, and four year old me went with a third sponsor. And and that's where my memories begin: being taken away from my parents, howling and screaming. And intuitively, at that point, I knew I was a refugee. And enforced separation has obviously been in everyone's minds this year with the awful sounds and images of children being separated at the border. You know exactly what that's like, because I think right at that beginning process, you were separated from your siblings for, for several months. And you wrote that it remains to this day an invisible brand stamped between your shoulder blades. Yeah, I think... Uh, again, at that age, I had no way to rationally make sense out of what was going on, and, uh, but I certainly was emotionally imprinted by that experience, and my experience was benevolent. I was taken away from my parents and sent away for a few months, and the, the reason behind that was actually benevolent because uh, the sponsors wanted to give my parents the opportunity to to get on their own two feet without having to worry about taking care of their children, but obviously, as a four-year-old, you don't ex- understand that, so I understood it to be an emotionally damaging experience. And so I can imagine, I can empathize with what it would mean for children today to be separated in a not benevolent fashion from their parents at the border and how damaging that would be, even if it was only for a few months. And in obviously in many of these cases, it's not just a few months, it's many, many months and going on for even longer. And uh, I think that my way of coping with that experience was to 
submerge it. Not that I ever forgot about it. I, I understood. I remembered that I'd been taken away from my parents, but I refused to deal with that emotionally. And it, it definitely um, <laughs> shaped who I became as a young person, uh, shaped uh, my inability to emotionally connect with people. You know, turned me into someone who was afraid of being abandoned. And that would have a deep impact on my relationships with uh, people inside my family and outside of my family. And so I know I can predict that for many of these children today who are being separated from their parents, they will definitely be damaged uh, by what has happened to them. Well, that actually speaks to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, In your writing, you do a fantastic job of portraying kind of complex different characters who are refugees and who have been displaced. And I think one of the things that I think is challenging and, and that I'm sure you experienced in different ways is the difference between growing up as a refugee in in the United States versus actually just growing up as more of a mar- marginalized population, as a Latino or an African-American who um, may have actually been born in the United States. And I was wondering kind of as you came of age – how you what you think of as the differences between and how you experience the differences between being a refugee as compared to just more kind of marginalized citizens? Well, I think there's so many different ways that, that these experiences have, have taken place. I mean, the, the populations that you mentioned were all minorities or marginalized in different ways in this country. And and uh, the, the, what what has happened to African-Americans can't be compared to what has happened to Latinos or, or mm-hmm. what has happened to refugees. But I think, you know, the specific nature of, of the refugee experience in the United States, and this is not true for every country, but in the United States, is that we fall sort of under the idea of the immigrant and yet not. So I think our closest kin are probably the undocumented immigrants, you know, because this is a country that uh, mythologically still believes itself to be a nation of immigrants. Now, there are some people in this country, you know, who who don't want immigrants to come to this country, but they still believe in the idea that immigrants want to come to the, come to this country because it's, a, it's, it's, it's an awesome country, right? Mm-hmm. But refugees... Uh, you know, we we talk about them as if they're they're immigrants, but they're not. I mean, and one of the ways they're not is that refugees are unwanted where they come from, and and typically unwanted where they go to. And so, people who come here as refugees know very soon that they shouldn't call themselves refugees. I went recently, for example, to a high school in Boise that has a, a, a refugee program set up specifically for refugee students, and I was told, you know, you're going to speak to a lot of refugee students. So I I got up in front of them and. I asked them, oh, how many of you are refugees? And no one raised their hands. And then I asked them, how many of you are immigrants? And then they started to raise their hands. So they were definitely refugees, but they already knew after a few months or a year or so in the United States that they shouldn't call themselves that because there is something stigmatized about being a refugee. Now, there's still a way to get into this country uh, culturally, politically as an immigrant, and that's what people choose to identify themselves as. So I think that's one of the key uh, ways of separating out the refugee experience from, let's say, what happens to documented immigrants or Latinos who come in a documented fashion. Uh, and then so that way, refugees and the undocumented, I think, are undocumented are, are cousins and knowing that they, they, are, they should be fearful of how they're perceived here. I think that's so interesting because I, I sometimes see in other contexts people making a distinction between migrants and refugees in a way that positions refugees as the more legitimate and deserving. They're the people we absolutely should open our doors to because they're fleeing persecution, whereas sometimes migrants can be almost demonised as economic migrants who are coming to take jobs and um, ones that we should put up the borders to. So I think it's fascinating that you say that it's actually 
something that people feel they need to to brand themselves as uh, as migrants. Well, it's also interesting because I know that we've talked about this before, but there's kind of public opinion polling that's come out in at least European contexts that uh, evidence is what you're saying, Ravi. So people believe that refugees are they're more supportive of refugees um, uh, being brought into their countries than economic migrants, and. Two of the things that this makes me think about from time to time is one kind of to your point, Viet, like people don't know automatically whether you're a refugee or an immigrant. Of course, it depends on where you come from and the country and alignment uh, culturally and linguistically. But it's, you know, people aren't wearing T-shirts that like say whether you're an economic migrant or a refugee. And and so it's it's kind of, you know, it's more like conceptual than felt or experienced. But then the second thing is, you know, that data is from Europe and not from America. America has a long tradition that you're pointing out where the mythology is based around, uh, you know, economic mobility, economic migration, a myth of Horatio Alger in a way that like that's what's needed to adopt to become a part of the American narrative. And so I also wonder if at least in the U.S. context, it's more of a function of just being the right type of uh, fitting into the right type of narrative. I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I was thinking very specifically of the European example where they don't really have a cultural or mythological tradition of the economic migrant or the immigrant. Uh, the refugee, I think, has a greater purchase on the on the European imagination because of the events of the 20th century. You know, the the, the, the earlier great refugee crisis occurred uh, during and after World War II, and there was great political and moral cause to welcome refugees uh, uh, in, the, in the years after that, right? I think Europeans mm-hmm. felt guilty about not having taken in refugees, for example, in certain cases during World War II. And so now there is great moral uh, urgency to for taking in refugees. Um, economic migrants, however, in Europe, I think, are perceived as being culturally different and not having any kind of really moral um, legitimacy wrapped around them. And I think it is different in the United States because we don't use the term economic migrants for the most part. I think that is beginning to surface now. But traditionally, we haven't used that because the idea of the immigrant has been all-encompassing. And of course, it's included the economic dimension because it's wrapped up again with this American mythology of the American dream. You know, people come here to remake themselves, which includes remaking themselves not just culturally but economically. So the American dream and immigration is completely, you know, wrapped up with this idea of economic, uh, climbing the economic ladder and getting greater economic mobility that people didn't have wherever it is that they came from. But I think that's starting to change a little bit because of the new administration or the current administration and that administration's um, xenophobia is also wrapped up with the the fear of immigrants who are uh, economic immigrants, and specifically the idea that Im- these kinds of immigrants are coming to take away American jobs or to drain American resources. And so that that conflation of uh, cultural xenophobia with economic competition, uh, which is not new in American society, it's been there for a very long time, is just now experiencing resurgence and uh, emphasizing the economic dimension of migration. You're making me realise that I'm actually more British and European than I like to admit, because I obviously reached for the the refugee um, framing as being more uh, legitimising and, and uh, welcoming than the sort of migrant framing. I just want to go back to something you said a bit earlier, which was about how refugees can feel a sense of belonging and how the experience of being a refugee changes them. Uh, both consciously and consciously. And and you've written about this and said that it happened to you and others, that need to belong changes you. Can you just say a little bit about that personally and and how 
you therefore think um, that a sense of belonging can be nurtured. Well, one way to, I think, draw another distinction between refugees and immigrants is that immigrants may not feel the sense of loss in the same way that refugees do. You know, immigrants have, for the most part, made a voluntary choice to move from one country to the next. And oftentimes, they move under circumstances in which they're allowed to go back. They, they either can go back permanently, for example, which has happened often in American history, or they can go back on a periodic basis and be binational or bicultural or go back to visit the country of origin and their relatives. And so in that sense, I think maybe the, the sense of belonging or, or the sense of loss that leads to a greater desire for belonging may not be quite as acute for first-generation immigrants. Uh, obviously, they also have problems with belonging, as we see with immigrant literature and immigrant culture, and, and that might be more pronounced for the uh, the 1.5 generation. But refugees are, are, again, here distinct because they're oftentimes forced out of their countries of origin because the countries have collapsed, the states have disintegrated for various kinds of reasons, and, and they can't go back. Um, they've been persecuted, for example, or there's nothing to go back to. And so in that sense, I think because they have nothing to go back to the sense of loss and the desire for belonging is even more accentuated than it is for, for immigrants. And in my particular case, and I think my case is not unique, I felt myself caught in between. You know, I've, I've, I certainly wanted to belong to the United States, but felt a sense of, of refusal or, or alienation for a variety of different reasons. And, and I also knew that I, I had been displaced, not by my own choice or by my parents' own choice, from Vietnam, the country of origin. And I think that that sense of not belonging to either place uh, uh, was very was very formative for me and for a lot of first generation refugees. That's probably not true as as true for our children. You know, my son is the son and the grandson of, of refugees, but he's growing up as a, as a middle class American. And and if I didn't interfere with with that, he might have no sense of loss and and no desire for for belonging. But in fact, I, I try to remind him that this is his history. This is where he comes from, and for better or for worse, maybe he'll have a lingering sense of that of that desire that was so much more pronounced for for me and and for my brother and while that's very painful for for us who actually went through it i think there was something beneficial to it um something that imbued me with an uh, a respect and an empathy for for those who've been displaced uh, those who have been alienated those who uh, have lost their homes which has turned me into the writer and the person that i am and i want to give that to him because i think it'll make him a better human being so I think that sense of not quite belonging anywhere is something that really resonates with me. And although I think you're absolutely right that it is different for somebody who's a refugee has been forced to flee compared to a migrant, there are some overlaps, uh, particularly for a sort of second generation immigrant like me. So I feel some tenuous connection to India, but slightly cut off because I didn't actually go there very much as a child. And yet I never felt particularly connected to being British. I grew up struggling to support the, the football team, never really feeling any sense of national pride until I was really an adult. And my route to feeling attachment and belonging was not through the nation. It was more through community. It was through attachment to being uh, from the north of England, from a town, Gilburnley, a local football club. And gradually I felt my attachment and sense of belonging widen to some sort of national identification. And I started to feel comfortable in being attached to multiple identities. In terms of your evolution or the evolution of refugees and how they form attachments and, and belonging, how do you think that tends to progress? 
There's such a wide spectrum of possibility, as you were saying, you know, I mean, our affiliations may be local, they may be regional, they may be national, they they may occur with things outside of the nation, like as you're talking about with football and so on. And it's hard to predict, you know, because I just described how I dealt with being a refugee and, you know, I felt like I had developed a greater sense of empathy for other refugees and immigrants and the displaced. And yet there were other Vietnamese refugees of my generation or the or, or older generation who, who have no sense of empathy, as far as I can tell, for, for refugees and for immigrants and and who have a huge attachment to national identity, both to the the refugee nationalism of the displaced Vietnamese people and their affiliation with their lost country and to a Trumpian kind of nationalism as well. I mean, there are a lot of ardent Trump supporters among the Vietnamese refugee generation. So it's very un, very unpredictable. I think my background is probably a little bit closer to yours because, you know, I felt growing up that I, I was a, technically an American and I saw myself as that. But I was. I also felt like I wasn't an American, and I wasn't really attached to things like the Star Spangled Banner or pledging allegiance. I always felt a kind of skepticism to the symbols of nationalism, not just American nationalism, but all kinds of nationalism. And so, I, that, that I think that you know, it's really, really hard to predict, and that's why there's such a struggle over these questions of who we are, what we belong to, and what are we to make out of our experiences. Some people are confronted with the experience of exclusion or of immigration or being a refugee, and their reaction is just to want all those signs of belonging really, really strongly, you know, to become American, for example, or to become British and to exclude uh, everyone else. And others look at that process of exclusion and think, well, we shouldn't replicate it for others. You know, we should focus on the nature of exclusion itself and try to build a society that doesn't exclude others. And, and that's the project that I find myself aligned with. That, that, that was a great answer to Ravi. What I thought your question was like, what's your model of identity formation, <laughs> which is a big one and a challenging one. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on um, that you were talking about kind of there and that you've talked about in your writing quite a bit is um, the need to generate empathy. And you've noted that you oftentimes insist on calling yourself a refugee because it reminds you to display empathy. And I think one of the interesting things that uh, kind of micro-level research is starting to kind of come out with is um, some generalized evidence that people who are actually exposed to traumatic experiences like violence uh, tend to be more cooperative and empathetic. Uh, those tend to they tend to host greater numbers of refugees, exhibit stronger preferences for distressed refugees, less outgroup bias. Um, this is some kind of interesting meta-level work that we'll throw in the show notes by um, Chris Blattman and colleague that's starting to come out. And one of the things that I I think your writing does actually really uh, complicate a lot of the narratives and the uh, stories that we um, see around refugees. And I would love to hear your reflections on how you think about uh, both creating empathy, what its role is in the characters that you craft, and how that kind of maps onto um, some of kind of the insights that great, greater exposure to these experiences actually generates more empathy. And you say my questions are a bit ludicrously Olympian, Grants. Yeah, just what are your thoughts on all those things? <laughs> well, I, I think, obviously, I believe in the nature of, of empathy. I, I believe in the importance of empathy. And I also hope to believe that people who have been traumatized would be empathetic to 
other people who are undergoing traumatic uh, experiences. But all that has to be measured in a certain way. And I'd be curious about whether these this research, for example, is able to distinguish between the degrees of trauma that people have experienced and then what, what happens to them as a result. Because again, just looking at at what I've seen in the results of people who've been traumatized as a result of the of the Vietnam War, it's true that that some of them, you know, do develop greater uh, a greater sense of empathy. But it's also true that some of them do not. You know, some of them are are so traumatized by their experience that they return that experience with greater hatred. For example, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if there's a de- if what also is important is the degree of removal we have from the trauma. Like someone who's directly experienced trauma, they've been tortured, they've been shot at, they've killed people, may have a different relationship to empathy than someone like me who is only a witness to traumatic experience. You know, I mean, my hist- I've been shaped completely by the Vietnam War, but I was too young to really see anything about it and to 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 say that. I, I was an eyewitness. I've only suffered from the consequences of it. And so maybe it's easier for me in that situation to extend this idea of empathy to others. Whereas if I had been thrown into a re-education camp, for example, and done 10 years in that camp and come out of it, maybe I wouldn't be very empathetic. Maybe I would really hate my enemies and really be capable of of uh, not empathy, but 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 hatred and, and the desire for revenge. And so that's that's that I think that that capacity to understand that there's a, a spectrum of possibilities that come out of trauma and the uses of empathy are, are important for someone like a novelist to, to have, but maybe also for the rest of us to have too, because in my own work, I try to show that people who've underwent traumatic experiences don't necessarily come out of it being angels. They don't necessarily come out of it you know, wanting to help other people. They come out of it sometimes wanting to engage in more violence and to continue fighting wars. And that's also something that we need to recognize in terms of the nature of empathy as well. I mean, empathy is absolutely crucial if you want to be a writer, if you want to be an artist in your own work. But obviously, we have many examples of writers and artists who are wonderful in their art and then horrible as human beings. So somewhere along the way, that empathy happens to disappear in their own interpersonal experiences. And empathy as a whole is is a tool. It, it's not something that, that that has a guaranteed outcome. And so, for example, empathy can be used by the military. You know, David Petraeus, when he was talking about fighting a better you know, counter-guerrilla, counter-insurgent warfare in Afghanistan, said, well, you know, we, better, we have to better understand our enemy. We have to better understand the Afghani people. Well, that's empathy at work, but in a very different context than how I would deploy it. So uh, I think we have to, to be both recognize the uses of empathy, but not be sentimental about it as well. And we're going to take a short break. Uganda in East Africa has more startups than any other country in the world, but they're driven by necessity. The number of young people searching for work dramatically exceeds the number of jobs available, so they create them. In the podcast Aspen Insight, you'll hear how entrepreneurs, investors, and nonprofits are working to create jobs and lift people out of poverty. This episode focuses on a program at the Aspen Institute called the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs, or ANDI. Andy's goal is to use entrepreneurship to increase prosperity in developing countries. In Aspen Insights, hosts Zach St. Louis and Marcy Krivenin travel the halls of the Aspen Institute and learn from people who are working to make the world a better place. Aspen Insight is a podcast from the Aspen Institute, an educational and policy studies organization. Find Aspen Insight on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. We're back now with Viet San Nguyen. I read somewhere that part of the way in which you fill in the gaps in your memory 
um, and actually write about refugee experiences is by um, using the empathy you have through being a father yourself to imagine what it was like being a young boy of four uh, having to leave their country. I'm just interested in this question about how you um, use your imagination allied to your memory and whether it ever feels awkward or inauthentic when you're writing and about stories when you're drawing so heavily on personal experience, but then having to fill in the gaps. You know, in, in much of my writing, I, I never, I didn't actually draw from personal experience. When I wrote the book, The Refugees, um, much of that, I mean, yes, it was based on the fact that I was a refugee and I was, you know, knew a lot of Vietnamese refugees and so on. But I didn't really draw as much from my emotional depths as I, I would, I would do in my my later work. Um, and I was because I was resisting the autobiographical. You know, I, I didn't want to be an autobiographical writer. I wanted to be a fictional writer. And that's and that's part of the my resistance against what's imposed on refugees and minorities. That when we become writers, for example, we're only expected to be able to write about what we know, uh, which means write autobiographically. So I was resistant uh, to that. And so it took me a long time to excavate autobiographically and, and to use uh, my own emotions, my own experiences, in in my in my fiction and in my nonfiction and and in uh, work like nothing ever dies and Vietnam and the memory of war. I started to turn more to that, uh, you know, looking at myself, looking at how I felt and understanding that even when I was not writing autobiographically, I could draw from autobiographical emotions. And I think that's at the point where I started to understand how painful it was to become a writer. You know, I mean, it's painful to be a writer just when we're talking about questions of artistry and endurance, you know, just persisting with the craft. But it becomes even more painful when, for me as a writer, when I understood, well, that in order to write genuine drama, genuine characters, I would have to sort of look inwardly into myself and my own experiences. And and that's what I mean, that when I, I suppressed for so long that experience of being a four-year-old refugee, being taken away from my parents, because I didn't want to feel that. But in order to be a better writer, I've had to go and, and, and use that emotion, use that experience. And that to me felt that it was becoming even more authentic to myself. Even when I was starting to write about even when I'm writing about people who are not like me, I still had to go look into myself, look at that experience. And that was where the authenticity lay, is in trying to keep drilling into that emotion, trying to trying to understand it. And, you know, in becoming a father, having a son who then became four years old last year, it felt to me that I, I had to keep looking at myself as a father, had to keep looking at him as a child in order to better understand uh, myself, my emotions, my, my history. Um, and the only... You know, places where I begin to feel inauthentic is when I have to start repeating myself over and over again. So I'm on the lecture circuit. I go and I I tell many of the same stories over and over again. The same kind same kinds of stories I'm sharing with you and about my family and and everything else. And after about the tenth or fiftieth time, I'm thinking, is it still authentic? If I keep on telling this story, <laughs> is it still authentic? Um, and I have to say that there is a sense in which I feel maybe it is inauthentic to keep on telling the same story over and over again. But then I think for most of the audience, they've never heard this story before. And so for them, there is something authentic about that. And that's where I have to (laughs) remind myself, I have to keep on telling this story because I have to keep on reaching these new audiences because for them, hearing about displacement, hearing about loss, hearing about what it means to have a four-year-old removed from his parents for both that four-year-old and for those parents, that is new. That is authentic. There's still a mission uh, to be had in telling this story over and over again. 
so uh, I have I wanted to pick up on a few pieces there, but just on this last one, what about the process of repetition generates a sense of inauthenticity? Can I still feel something? I mean, the authentic, I think, we associate with feeling. Well, if, if, if there's an automatic emotional expression or an automatic emotional touchstone, that's authentic because we're not being rational about it. And I have to say that when I first started going the lecture circuit a few years ago as a result of the sympathizer, you know, I was I very was very much conscious of myself as a storyteller, trying to craft a story, uh, but also conscious of not revealing too much of myself. I didn't want to stand up in front of an audience of hundreds sometimes a thousand people and have to cry. No, that was not, that was, that, that to me actually felt inauthentic. I don't want to manipulate the audience. I don't want to manipulate myself. So I actually resisted going too deep into myself in front of an audience. And then as the story evolved, as I tried to figure out how to, how to reach that audience and reach myself, I started becoming more personal in, fr- in front of the audience, but not because I wanted to cry. I didn't want to do that. But then all of a sudden, at some points, I was literally overwhelmed in front of the audience. This was a very authentic and disturbing experience for me mm-hmm. because I didn't want to cry and I found myself crying in front of that audience. And I realized it was through the repetition, trying to figure out what the story was, that I was able to eventually drill deeper into myself, go back to that four-year-old self, go back to that four-year-old experience and discover that it had an enormous emotional experience for me. That and a number of other things that had happened to me and to my family. And so I felt that the repetition was actually ab- absolutely crucial to trying to figure out where that emotion was. Where was it under the surface? I had to keep t- repeating to try to drill deeper. And then it reached a certain point where I'm wondering whether there's anything deeper to get to. This is where I'm reaching the sort of equilibrium between authenticity and inauthenticity. And I feel like, well, I still have to keep repeating because I don't know where the repetition is going to lead me. And that that is actually part of traumatic experience. People who are traumatized, and I'm not saying that I'm as traumatized as many, many other people. I think my, my trauma is actually not that great compared to many other people. But the nature of traumatic experience is repetition. You have to, you're, you, 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 your, your traumatic core is something that repeats itself inside of you and that you have to keep on telling. And maybe that's the only way to actually cope with that. Uh, and who knows where the repetition is going to lead both for me personally, but also for the audience as well. It's funny, I was doing a, a podcast with my dad recently. Who I was fl- not invited. Grant was not invited. And I. Uh, it was about him fleeing Burma during the Second World War. And it was interesting because he was telling his story for the first time on record. And what struck me is that it had a lot more coherence when he had a mic in front of him than when he was rambling on our sofas when we were growing up. And I think that's part of that is about, there's something about being forced to tell a story that makes you um, fill in the blanks. So you're not allowed to have fragments and contradictions. Um, You have to give it some sort of coherence. And I'm just wondering about when you've told your own story, to what extent has it ended up um, becoming more coherent as it's evolved and has it almost changed your own sense of self as you've um, as you've written about it absolutely I think as as I was telling this story over time I had to be conscious of the impact it would have upon the audience and so there's really two audiences one is the audience of me and me trying to deal with my own personal history and my own personal past and then there's there's the audience that I'm speaking to and and for me you know as I'm 
this person sitting on a sofa talking to myself, for example, uh, the events of my past having emotional significance for me, but that may that those events may not have emotional significance for the audience. So for them to experience anything like what I'm experiencing, I understand that I, as a storyteller, have to have to put these events into a narrative. And I don't think that's that's inauthentic. I mean, that's that's the role of the novelist or the writer or the storyteller of any kind is to try to figure out how to trigger an emotion in the person who's listening that approximates the emotion that you, I, myself, am experiencing. And as I go around talking to different audience, what I'm trying to under, get them to understand is not simply that they're listening to a story and they may be feeling something, but that they themselves are their own storytellers, that they themselves are going out there oftentimes repeating stories that they have heard and that they have intuited and that they have taken to be natural. And the reason why they've done that is because they've been impacted so powerfully by these stories without even realizing it. So, for example, Make America Great Again is a story. It's an enormously powerful story. It's a masterful story, actually, in just four words that that many people have already believed in and now have the affirmation to continue believing in and to tell to other people. Well, I go out there in front of an audience and say, well, you have to tell a different story. Here's my version of the story that I'm trying to use there to deploy against Make America Great Again. And so that's what happens. And as I tell that my own story, one of the things that happens is that I, 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 I remember things as you imply. So there are one or two things that stand out in my memory, probably stand out in all our memories of our own personal histories. But as I tell my own story, I have to sit back and think about my own childhood, for example, and, re- and start to remember things that I haven't remembered for a very long time. And understanding that those things are part of me that I've forgotten about them and that I can put them into a larger framework now. And that's partially what we all do ourselves. We forget, we remember. And when we start to remember, we then have to put things into a narrative to make sense out of ourselves to ourselves, which most of us, I think, you know, oftentimes never have to do. We can be completely unself-reflective and that's what leads to repetitious behavior, you know, things that we don't understand about ourselves, we keep on doing again in ways that negatively affect us and negatively affect others. And so that's why it's important to have an audience, whether it's an audience of hundreds, whether it's an audience of our family, whether it's an audience of our therapist, so that we can try to tell these stories to them and to ourselves in order to make sense out of ourselves and hopefully help us deal with who we are and with our own past. What you're talking about there just reminds me of what Keats talked about when he talked about the negative capability uh, someone being capable of being un- being in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without reaching after fact and reason. Because I think there's a balance between telling stories to try and make sense of your own self whereas versus actually recognising the ambiguity and, um, and and gaps in your own in your own narrative and embracing that. But to also add on here, and, and this is something I think about frequently, is a lot of the trauma that we're kind of peripherally discussing right now and that you've um, kind of outlined some of the different levels of yet is really hard to sit with um, and hard to process. And I've seen this in kind of some of my family members, uh, my grandparents uh, were all kind of victims in World War II and and survivors and uh, lots of family members and friends kind of down the line. And you see, or I have seen over time at least, that a lot of the narrative really changes every time the story is told because the trauma that's at the core of the story is not easy to kind of like coexist with. And the story changes incrementally to 
become a little bit more comfortable to sit in, whether it was your behavior or what was exacted on you externally. And it's the ways in which people reconstruct memories and narratives to be able to kind of get by with. And that's actually where I think oftentimes a departure from truth is a departure that's more kind of mentally sustainable, um, but maybe quite far. Well, that goes to the nature of trauma, right? I think that if someone has been horribly traumatized by some kind of event and they can't tell a story about it, then they actually are not able to cope with that trauma. And this is where the repetition comes in, right? Something horrible has happened to you and it has shaken you to the core and it is a part of your core, as a matter of fact. And if you cannot tell a story about it, it will continue to shake you or it will continue to be embedded in, in you, waiting to resurface in ways that you can't control, you can't articulate, you can't make sense out of. And that's true for a lot of people. And so there's there's a, a, a difference between that kind of traumatic experience, which is destructive and re- continues to destroy people even in the present, and the, what you're talking about, which is, when people, and you're absolutely right, when people start to tell stories about their trauma, they're trying to make sense out of it. They're trying to contain it in various ways. They're trying to contain the damage, and they're trying to do that by re- by, by taking control of the trauma, by putting it within a story. Trauma resists stories. By definition, a trauma is not a story. A trauma is just the pain, the horrible incident. A story puts that incident into a narrative, you know, uh, creates villains, creates heroes or antiheroes or whatever, puts you yourself as a protagonist into that, that narrative, a protagonist who has survived, who has become a different kind of person than the person who was damaged. And so you're absolutely right that a story, I think, in, inevitably distances us from trauma in both ways that are that are are good and necessary, but also ways that that create distance from the horror and the pain itself. So this is the contra- contradiction built built in into the act of storytelling, uh, and it's true no matter what kind of traumas that we're we're talking about. So I can point, for example, to uh, a trauma that's not my own, which is the Cambodian genocide. Uh, and if you go to Cambodia, for example, and you go to the S21 museum that was that is built on this on the on this prison where 17,000 people were murdered by the Khmer Rouge, what you witness over time as that museum grows is that the storytelling begins to distance people from the trauma. When you go there at an earlier point in the museum's history, the trauma is right in your face. You know, they're just like skulls that are sitting out there on the museum grounds. It's horrifying. And then as the years have passed, now the the store the layers of storytelling have begun to accrue. And the museum begins to look more and more like the European museums of the Holocaust. You go into the European museums of the Holocaust. These museums, they're dealing with horrific, traumatic events, but they're also beautiful museums at the same time. The archiving, the curation, the storytelling, the narration, these have all come in to mediate our relationship to this horror, this horror of the past. So yes, we get to see the horror, but it's put into a storytelling context for us, and there's no way we could approximate what actually happened to those people in those camps. But that's how we also deal with it. That's how we are able to try to not survive it, but make sense out of what happened to them as well. So let me just take you on a kind of like a similar uh, variant. I know that uh, you have taught a course at USC called War and Memory. And uh, a lot of what we're talking about kind of gets at the core subjects. But if you were to take a step back, what do you think one or two of the three things that you kind of commonly teach and try to have people understand in that course is? I think the most difficult thing that I try to get people to 
grapple with is that at the core of, of war and memory, for example, is the process of remembering and forgetting. We're remembering war or some kind of traumatic experience, but we're also forgetting at the same time because it's, it's simply impossible, obviously, to remember everything. We have to forget. Uh, now, at that point, then the question becomes, what do we remember and what do we forget? And What's really difficult, I think, for people to to get their minds around is the fact that what they take to be so crucial that needs to be remembered oftentimes allows them to forget something that is completely contradictory to their own sense of themselves. Um, so, for example, at, at the the you know one of the core histories in in memory studies, especially war and memory studies, is Holocaust studies. And obviously, you know, what comes out of that is this, these, these slogans to always remember and to never forget mm-hmm. what happened in the Holocaust, what happened to Jewish people. Obviously, we should always remember and never forget. But in fact, we do forget. We don't forget what happens to, to Jewish people, but we, we do forget uh, that uh, Israel, in the present case, may be doing certain things to, to Palestinians. Now, when you raise an issue like that, people go, people get very, very upset. With it. It's impossible that victims could ever become victimizers. Um, now, that's hugely debatable in the Israeli-Palestinian context, but overall, this, this, this impulse in war and memory to remember ourselves as victims, but to forget that we could ever be victimizers is fairly universal. Uh, if we mm-hmm. talk only about the United States, the way that the United States makes sense out of itself as a country, generally speaking, is to remember itself as a victim. You know, 9-11, we're the victims of this terrible thing that happens to us, which is precisely then what allows the United States to continue doing what it does overseas, where the United States really isn't a victim, but is in fact a dominant power. And that does not make the United States unique. It actually makes the United States very typical, very normal. It happens in my own uh, history, my own community. The Vietnamese in Vietnam who won the war, they think of themselves as victims too. They were victimized by the French. They were victimized by the Americans. There's no way they could be victimizers. And yet that's exactly what they did to the Vietnamese that they defeated. And the Vietnamese that they defeated who became refugees in the United States, many of them think of themselves only as victims that they lost their country, they were victimized by the Vietnamese communists, it's impossible for them to have victimized anybody else. And yet, if you look at the history of South Vietnam, that's exactly what took place. So, if anything, that's, I think, the core lesson of my classes on war and memory, uh, because it's precisely by forgetting what we have done to others, remembering ourselves only as victims, that we allow the cycle of warfare to continue. The very kind of cycle that we very piously say we don't want to repeat is exactly what we allow to continue by remembering ourselves only as victims. Peter, we've talked a lot about uh, personal stories and how individuals make sense of their past. But what you were getting at there, I think, speaks to uh, something I also want to get onto, which is how nations construct narratives and myths. And right now, when we're thinking about the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, we're always thinking within the IRC, how do we create a narrative that is inclusive, that brings people on board? I'm interested in your views and advice on how you tell a story about what's going on in the world today that potentially widens uh, the circle of support. That's the task of, again, of of storytelling and of empathy. Um, Make America Great Again, for example, is a powerful story, but it's also a story that has empathy in it. when Donald Trump got up and and did his 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 inauguration speech and said, you know, there's 
American carnage that's taking place and you will never be forgotten again. He's exercising empathy. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm empathizing with you. But the you does not include me or people like me. The you is is defined in a certain kind of way, but it's still empathetic. But it's a, And it's a story, but it's a very particular kind of a story addressed at a very particular kind of community. And this kind of storytelling, this kind of narrow empathy is at the core of nationalism, which is a great story and which is actually about empathy, but it's also about an empathy that is highly circumscribed and a story that is always predicated on saying, well, we remember you, but we're definitely going to forget these others. And so the task for someone like me is to argue we have to expand the story. We have to expand the circle of empathy to include ever and more more people. And we have to craft a story that uh, explodes the narratives that nationalism wants to create. You know, nationalism wants to say, well, we're only responsible for a certain group of people out there. In the case of the contemporary refugee crisis, you know, nationalists would say, well, okay, arguably we need to help people who we've directly affected. So in that case, the the United States said, okay, we directly affected Vietnam. It's very obvious. So we have a moral obligation to help Vietnamese refugees, but nobody else. And likewise, now with the current refugee crisis, I think many Americans would look at the situation and say, well, we owe nothing to Syrians or people from the Middle East, for example, because we didn't do anything there. That's arguable. And the, the case for greater, for the kind of storytelling that I want to engage in is to say, well, look, you know, we, we, need to, we need to craft a greater story that says, well, we actually are responsible. We have engaged in certain kinds of political actions as Americans that have created these refugees. Or we are, Amer- we are as Americans, ethically responsible to people all over the world because we, through our capitalism and our voracious consumer habits are contributing to the destruction of the climate that is producing climate refugees. Uh, so there are there are there are so many more challenges that 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 arise in this act of storytelling, this act of empathy that are confronting us today in the present refugee crisis. Many people would want to create very narrow stories in order to refuse ethical and moral obligations to others. And then there are other kinds of storytellers and not just professional storytellers, but you know people like you and me and many of the people who are listening feel like, no, we need to, we're ethically and morally obligated, politically obligated to tell a story that would create greater empathy towards these distant others, these these distant refugees. So your insight there on morality as being one of the driving parts of the narrative strikes me because one of my observations around a lot of the conversations about refugees right now and thinking about the displacement crisis is one that tries to reframe refugees as uh rather than being like a cost on society, is kind of bringing it down as an investment. And I often find there to be kind of contradictory expectations around refugees. Uh, On one hand, if refugees are doing well, they're taking our jobs. On the other hand, if they're doing poorly, they're kind of becoming a drag on the welfare system and bringing down society. And so if they're successful, it's a failure. And if they're actually not doing well, it's a failure. And I often wonder if just kind of the way that the conversation has gone around the economics of the crisis is is actually the wrong frame. And we'd love to get your thoughts on that. The way that I phrased it is through the idea that there are good and bad refugees and that even accepting that language is a trap for, for us. Because exactly as you say, you know, we, we people who are anti-refugees or anti-immigrants immigrants will say, we don't want to get, take them in because there are too many bad ones out there, both in terms of economic costs, but also moral and legal costs as well. We only want the good ones, the good refugees, the good immigrants. But of course, once these good refugees and good immigrants start to become successful, uh, then they become too competitive. They become too 
scary uh, because they're going to take away American jobs or they're going to you know move into our neighborhoods and, and take over our homes and and all of that. So I don't think we can win on on uh, that language. Uh, that that language is purely tactical, right? So when we trot out the idea that let's look at all these refugees, let's look at all these immigrants and, and, and show that they pay their share of taxes and so on. We're, I think, mostly speaking to people who already believe in the, the goodness of, of, of accepting refugees and, and immigrants. Underlying all of that, I think, is not just an economic question uh, and a moral question, but a cultural question. People who resist refugees and immigrants, I think, are are really resisting them at a cultural level. Uh, they're using these other arguments about um, economic cost, for example, or legality. Um, I had to frame it in a rational fashion, but under, I think at the very core of it is, is a cultural question. Like, who are we as a country? Who are we as Americans? And the specter of, of refugees and immigrants becomes threatening because they are not Americans. They're not, they don't fit our idea, whoever we are, they don't fit our idea of what this country should be. So it's probably not an accident that the Kermit administration would probably be, you know, happy with Canadian immigrants, for example, or with Swedish immigrants and so on, because we've already been through that process as a country. You know, in the early 20th century, we, we wrestled over the question of who was an American, was a Swedish person an American, was a German, was a Greek, was, was a Polish person an American. Those were contentious debates in the early 20th century. They're no longer debates. So those people, can be welcomed because they've already become culturally assimilated into American society. But Mexicans or Central Americans or Asians or Africans, these people are culturally inassimilable according to a certain kind of American. So that's where the that's where I think the real the real struggle lies and everything else is sort of a superstructural aspect of that. And so that 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 is really when when anti-immigrant and anti-refugee people are 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 framing the issue as as a moral as a, as an absolute crisis for for American identity, they're right. We are in a struggle over what America is and, and who America is. Um, and there are some people who would want to maintain that America should be homogenous, and there are others who say we should be in America built upon differences. And this is really at the core of the debates and the, and the, and the battles that we're undergoing right now. And, and do you not think that the more we actually talk about embracing difference, all we do is tell those people who are already concerned that their communities have changed, that we don't actually recognize them and respect their their values and aspirations. So I, I'm sort of interested in whether you feel that those views that you've talked about are legitimate and how we actually best um, negotiate with them. Well, that's where we are definitely now in the political terrain, because in the political terrain, it's not always possible to come to reconciliation. Uh, it may be a situation in which some one side feels that they they have lost something. Now, I don't think that's actually true. You know, I think th- that uh, if we talk about an America built on differences, it's an America that can actually accommodate, for example, uh, white Christians, if that's the population that we're talking about. But if you're a population that sees this uh, this struggle over America as a zero-sum game, then you don't see this as a compromise. You see the idea of an America with differences as an America that you've lost. Now, if that's a situation, we're actually in a political moment where that perspective can't be uh, accommodated. And this is why there, the, the the political battles that we're undergoing right now over you know what the Trump administration represents or what the Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court represents has become so bitter because I think you know one one side does see it as a zero sum game and and that side also sees 
people like me as engaging in a zero-sum game too, and I, I don't see it that way. When I say that there's an America with uh, with differences, I, I would say that that's an America that can include everybody, in, including um, white Christians, for example, or supporters of the Trump administration and so on, but there has to be a compromise. There has to be a recognition that that those folks can also recognize someone like me as well. There has to be a process of mutual recognition. And if there is not a process of mutual recognition, then we get into a longer-term political struggle over what the next generation will believe. And I think that's exactly what's going on. And your role personally, Viet, you've written prolifically about some of the issues we've been talking about. What's driving you on now and, and what do you want to do next? I think what's driving me on is this sense of both the urgency of the contemporary situation, that it is important to engage in these tactical struggles over who gets nominated to the Supreme Court, whether or not we should allow undocumented immigrants in, whether DACA you know, will continue, whether people will be uh, granted amnesty. All these things are important, contemporary, urgent political struggles that I you know, I feel like I'm a, a part of and or that I'm aligned with people who are fighting for these kinds of things. But all of that takes place within the longer uh, the larger horizon of what's going to happen 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, what's going to be America of the next generation. And that has a global significance as well. But even just speaking within the context of the United States, I want I want a United States that will be a, a, a better country for, for my own son. I want to have a you know, United States in which his generation will take it for granted that we are in America built on differences rather than a monolithic America. So we can look at other struggles, the struggle struggle over gay rights and queer identities and queer possibilities, for example, and think, well, actually, in the course of the past generation, we have made significant uh, progress in that regard. We have made a significant generational change in perceptions and attitudes, and hopefully we won't go backwards in that sense. That's what I hope also as we discuss uh, what the next generation will perceive in terms of immigration, in terms of refugees, in terms of cultural differences, that the majority, of the, in, that an overwhelming majority of the next generation will take it for granted that we are a country that, that is built on differences and can survive on differences and that can welcome all kinds of differences. And in the last question, I actually want to ask about one of your reflections about your work really focusing at the intersection of politics and art and kind of quote how art can be a political force without being reduced to politics. And so as we wrap, I was wondering if you could provide some recommendations on art, uh, whether books or not, that you think audience members should look at. You know, we live in a country in which the idea that art and politics can be merged together has been something that many people resist because in this country we have a strong anti-communist tradition. And there's this perception that, you know, the only people who want to bring art and politics together are the communists, for example, and that's a bad thing. But that's that's simply not true, especially for marginalized populations. Um, for us, art and politics have always existed together because we could clearly look at the world of art and literature, for example, and can see that we've been excluded. And that's a political exclusion that masks itself as an, an as an aesthetic conclusion. And the most, you know, one of the most vibrant traditions that have has always insisted that art and politics comes together is the African-American tradition. So go and read Toni Morrison, who's always written about black people and black women in particular and insisted that the experiences of black women and black people are inherently universal. You know, go read James Baldwin. Go read ta Coates. But other writers uh, besides those, for example, would include someone like Tommy Orange. 
who wrote a, who's written a great you know contemporary novel called There There about the urban Native American experience. And if you read the first twenty pages, there's no way you can come away from that thinking that Thanksgiving is not also about genocide at the same time. Thanksgiving is genocide. That's the world that we live in where both these things can coexist simultaneously because that's our history. Uh, go read uh, Luis Alberto Urea's um, The House of Broken Angels set on the border of the United States and Mexico in San Diego, which makes its claim to be a great American novel, not in the sense that it's a, that it's a great novel only about the United States, but that it's a great novel about the United States and Mexico, the greater Americas. Uh, so there are so many books like that, um, that 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 press upon us the urgency of rethinking America from the perspective of others, from the perspective of the marginalized, from the perspective of the borders and the borderlands that continue to urge us as a country to expand our notion of what this country is and to expand our imagination through art and literature. You've given us a fantastic reading list to get into, and we will throw all of those up in the show notes, along with all your books. Viet Tanwin, thank you so much for being on Displaced. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Displaced. We've now got to thank a lot of people. He says miserably. Uh, Nishat Kurwa is our executive producer uh, Jelani Carter a special shout out to him in particular for all of everything he did for today's show we'd like to thank our senior producer Golda Arthur a special thank you to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios and Jarrett Floyd our sound engineer I suppose we've got to thank some people at ILC as well haven't we we like them thanks to Ben Moskovitz and Catherine Long Alex Bandea Alex Bandea thank you so much we really appreciate you we, have, we are hugely grateful to all of the support and hugely grateful to all of you who are listening. Thank you for listening. This is our last episode of the season, but we're back in January. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to miss doing this. I've grown a lot. I'm not. I'm going to really enjoy not having to sit in a room with Grant. You're going to still have to sit in a room with me, just not with headphones on. <laughs> This has been a fantastic season. We are so grateful to everybody who is tuned in to listen. Uh, we appreciate the conversation, uh, the feedback you've given, and all the ratings and reviews. Fear not, though. We will be back in January with fresh new episodes. And in the meantime, you can tweet us at, at Grant M. Gordon and at R. Gurumurthy with all your ideas for the new show and any feedback you've got. In this next season, we'll be tackling big topics like refugee resettlement, the future of conflict, technology's role in the refugee crisis, and otherwise. So thank you again, and we will see you in January. 